This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So, uh, welcome everyone. And um, this is the first time in the history of Ozen where a Sunday is a Sunday meeting has fallen on um, a uh, Anzac Day. So I thought it would be appropriate to say a few words about that. And, um, and uh, so I spent uh, quite a, a bit of time thinking about it, and uh, I've got a few notes that I'm going to refer to as I go along. And we have some appropriate bagpipes playing in the background. And a fly pass as well, just to introduce the Dharma talk. So the title of today's talk, the 25th of April, is Bearing Witness to Anzac Day. In today's talk, I'm going to bear witness to Anzac Day as a day of bearing witness. Um, bearing witness is something that we've been talking about uh, in our precepts study group. And for those of you who don't, um, uh, who haven't been participating in that, I will be I'll be mentioning some of the precepts to you this morning because I want to be, first of all, looking at the Anzac Day in the light of the precepts. And uh, our teacher, my teacher, I mean, Barry Majid, um, rewrote the precepts uh, using the language of bearing witness. And uh, in a way, the precepts, uh, which originated from the monastic uh, culture, and a literal interpretation of the precepts is a kind of, you know, don't do this, don't do that. But uh, in our tradition, we speak more in terms of a relative or subjective understanding of the precepts and an absolute understanding of the precepts. Um, so from a relative perspective, we, we do our best to practice uh, non-violence, non-harming. And it all varies on a situation by situation basis. Um, and um, and uh, from an absolute perspective um, of oneness, uh, there is no separate self or separate other. And so bearing witness is a, is a way of trying to maintain our ability to try and experience life and express ourselves in our lives from this perspective of the relative and the absolute. And that's not always an easy thing to do. Um, to see ourselves as the other is not always something which comes spontaneously to us. But from a subjective or relative point of view, even to have empathy for the other is a step in that direction. So bearing witness is also an important form of truth-telling. And there has been a number of nations uh, that have used uh, truth-telling as a means of reconciliation following for example, horrendous acts of genocide. Um, the notion of bearing witness has also been developed by family therapists, uh, such as Katie Weingarten in the United States, and Zen Buddhists such as Bernie Glassman, um, as a practice of facing up to everyday shock that comes from witnessing acts of violence and abuse that occur on an everyday basis, uh, just as a, when it could be on our TV sets, on the radio, stories our friends may tell us. Uh, we live in a culture, a globalization culture, we're constantly being confronted with uh, acts of violence and abuse and stories of acts of violence and abuse. And that can be quite shocking on an everyday way. Um, Anzac Day is our national day, um, and our national day of bearing witness to Australian soldiers who have fallen in the First World War and successive wars and peacekeeping forces since then. It um, is probably the most important collective ritual that Australian people participate in. And uh, 
it definitely contributes to people's sense of their national identity here in this country. However, while the ritual um, is indeed respectful of the form, I think it is only a selective witnessing and a selective kind of truth telling that takes place. This selectivity is something we all participate in as individuals. Avoidance or denial of the truth of what is or has been um, is commonly understood in psychotherapy as a protective strategy. And I think when we talk about our national psych or soul, as some people do, a similar process takes place. So my aim or my intention in this paper is, is not at all to criticize people who participate in Anzac Day rituals, not at all, but rather to encourage a national conversation about how Anzac Day may evolve in the future and how we may want to participate in this evolution. Um, there's four threads to this talk um, that I've woven together. So I want to start off by discussing bearing witness to Anzac Day in the light of the 10 precepts of bearing witness. And uh, starting with the first precept of bearing witness to the reality of violence and abuse in myself and in the world. I then want to give an overview of how Anzac Day has evolved over the years since the 1920s. This um, historical perspective is very interesting. Um, and also, as I was going, thinking about this talk and going through the precepts in relationship to Anzac Day, I also had in the back of my mind um, the 30th anniversary of the 1991 report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. So since 1991, over 470 of our First Nations peoples have died in custody. The never-ending news stories about violence and abuse towards women and children. And the establishment of a Royal Commission last week into the high rates of suicide among World War veterans. Um, it is estimated that over 500 veterans have suicided over the last 20 years. So that led me to reflecting on this question about um, what and who does Anzac Day fail to bear witness to? For example, the horror of war, how violence and abuse traumatizes people, how not every war necessarily is a legitimate and just war and the exclusion of our First Nations warriors from Anzac Day and the National War Memorial. And then finally, I want to conclude the talk by reflecting on this sort of binary relationship between bearing witness on the one hand and denial on the other hand. And I, I want to suggest that we need to be careful not to value bearing witness at the expense of denigrating denial. As, uh, as, as our colleague uh, Rhys Price Robinson suggested in his guided meditation talk that he gave last week, maybe we need to find ways of making room for and supporting resistance, denial, while at the same time empowering ourselves as best we can to bear witness. Finally, I want to leave you all with that question, are we ready as a nation to take steps towards making Anzac Day more inclusive. And if we are not ready, what needs to be done to prepare this nation to be more inclusive? So the 10, the ten precepts of bearing witness. Um, so as I explained before, Barry uh, revised the traditional language of the precepts uh, to have them reflect our practice of bearing witness rather than seeing them as rules of conduct. So let me read them out for you. And I think how you will see how they are relevant, not only to Anzac Day and to war in general, but also to the black deaths in custody, violence and abuse against women and children and the suicide of veterans. So the first precept, the first of the 10 precepts of burying witness is, I bear witness to the reality of violence and abuse in myself and in the world and aspire to practice nonviolence in my thoughts, words, and actions. So clearly, um, in fact, 
one could argue the all the, the, the next nine precepts are really variations on this first precept and uh, clearly applies to war and all the other issues I was talking about. The second precept, I bear witness to the reality of inequality and of greed in myself and in the world and aspire towards equality and sharing freely of all that I can. And traditionally, this was uh, often worded as do not take what is freely given. So, you know, one can see how that applies to the, uh, um, the invasion of Australia uh, and the taking of the land of, of, from the indigenous peoples, the First Nations peoples. The third precept, um, I bear witness to the power of sexuality and its potential for both love and for harm in myself and in the world and aspire to engage respectfully with an open heart in intimate relationships. Clearly, it's something that we're, we all need to work on in Australia in regards to the situation we find ourselves in with sexual assault and domestic violence. And also, one could also include within that big precept um, the uh, heterosexual dominance and the denigration of, of other varieties and kinds of sexuality the fourth precept, um, um, I bear witness to the lack of honesty in myself within the world and aspire to speak truthfully and compassionately. Again, we could just focus on that as a, take truth telling as an example on Anzac Day, and the importance of bearing witness to as much truth as we can bear. The, uh, the fifth applied precept, um, I bear witness to the reality of delusion and the desire to evade, to evade the painful truths of life in myself and in the world, and aspire to experience reality directly with clarity and kindness to self and others. Again, this precept references the almost inevitability of denial and avoidance that we often have to participate in in order to, to survive in this world, which is unfortunately so full of violence and abuse. And we all participate at times in avoidance and denial. The sixth precept, um, I bear witness to the reality of blame and the avoidance of responsibility in myself and in the world and aspire to speak of others with openness and possibility. Again, how often do uh, we at times evade responsibilities that we can take for addressing both the wrongs of the past and the present. The, uh, the seventh precept, um, I bear witness to the elevation of the self and the denigration of others by myself and in the world and aspire to meet others on equal ground. Again, how, how often we uh, find ourselves in a situation where the other is denigrated um, in different ways, whether the other be a woman, a child, a person of colour, etc., or a person um, of different sexual orientation or capacity. The eighth applied precept, I bear witness to the reality of possessiveness and the withholding of love and resources in myself and in the world, and aspire to give generously and appropriately. And again, in relationship to our First Nations people, we all participate in their dispossession. And we all in our different ways, hopefully can seek to help our governments address those injustices. Um, we still, as you all know, we don't have a treaty in this country. One of the few Commonwealth countries that doesn't have a treaty. Um, the, um, the ninth applied precept, I bear witness to the reality of my own ill will and the pain of divisiveness in the world and aspire to respond with compassion when difficult situations and emotions arise. Again, this is a traditionally do not be angry, do not hold on to anger. So we can see how that precept of hatred or anger is certainly relevant to everything we're talking about. And the final precept, I bear witness to my own lack of faith and the power of living in accordance with the reality of life as it is, and aspire to live each moment with mindfulness and compassion. Again, that's bearing witness to the 
to often the ignorance of our interdependence and the difficulty we have in, in bearing witness. And, um, and again, that almost like takes us back full circle, back to the first precept. So it's interesting when we start to view um, um, these issues uh, that arise in our contemporary everyday life that are constantly on the news in front of us all the time, how relevant these, uh, these precepts are to our lives. So I want to now just go into a little bit of history because I find it very interesting to contemplate how Anzac Day has evolved over the years. Um, so we recognize the 25th of April as a ceremonial occasion to reflect on the cost of war and to remember those who fought and lost their lives for their country. Anzac Day has grown in popularity over the years and I respect the participation of my family and all Australians who participate in Anzac Day. They are participating in this ritual to honor the fallen, those who have died in war. However, as a, as a national day of mourning, we need to also question what it excludes. If Anzac Day is a form of bearing witness or a form of truth telling, then it seems to me that Anzac Day only partially witnesses and a selective form of truth telling, which often renders the politics and the ethics of various governments that declared war and maintained war relatively invisible. And it denies a lot of that truth. As I said at the beginning, it denies, for example, the horror of war and the futility of the carnage. During the 1920s, Anzac Day became established as this national day of commemoration for the more than 60,000 60, Australians who died during the war. In 1927, for the first time, Every state observes some kind of public holiday on Anzac Day. And by the mid 1930s, all the rituals we now associate with the day go on vigils, marches, memorial services, two up games were firmly established as part of the Anzac Day culture. Later, Anzac Day also uh, served to commemorate the lives of Australians who died in the Second World War. And in subsequent years, the meaning of the day has been further broadened to include those who lost their lives in all the military and peacekeeping operations in which Australia has been involved. During and after Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, 1962 to 1975, interest in Anzac Day reached its lowest point in Australia. And this was the decade that I came of age. And at this time, my father didn't, didn't march on Anzac Day. And at that time, in 1971, the Scottish-Australian folk singer Eric Bodle wrote the song the band played while singing Matilda. I don't know if you've heard that one. But uh, it's interesting how that song, even though it's still very powerful, it's dated. And I'll, I'll read you the last verse. So now every April I sit on my porch and I watch the parades pass before me. And I see my old comrades how proudly they march, reviving your dreams of past glories. And the old men march slowly, old bones stiff and sore, their tired old heroes from a forgotten war. And the young people ask, what are they marching for? And I ask myself the same question. But the band plays waltzing Matilda, and the old men still answer the call. But as year follows year, more old men disappear. Someday, no one will march there at all. So you can see how that song is dated, but at the time that song was written, it seemed like it was a foregone conclusion that Anzac Day would die out. On the 26th of April, 1975, the Australian newspaper covered, covered the passing of Anzac Day in a single story. In the 60s and 70s, anti-war protesters used Anzac Day events as a platform to voice opposition to conscription and Australia's military involvement in general. The relevance of Australia's war connection with the British Empire was brought into question. 
1978, a women's group led a wreath dedicated to all the women raped and killed during war. The movements for feminism, gay rights and peace used the occasion to draw attention to their respective causes at various times during the 1980s. In 1981, the group Women Against Rape in War marched up Anzac Gray towards the Australian War Memorial to lay their wreath at the Stone of Remembrance. At the head of the procession, women held a banner which read, in memory of all women of all countries raped in wars. More than 60 women were arrested by police. And following this, there were calls for a new type of comradeship that did not discriminate based on sex and race. However, since the late 80s, and especially during the 1990s, interest in and attendance at Anzac Day has grown. On the 25th of April, 1990, Bob Hawke became the first Australian politician to visit Gallipoli. And he also decided that the government would pay to take Anzac veterans to Gallipoli for the 75th anniversary of the dawn landing. This is seen by historians as a major milestone in the recovery of Anzac Day. And Prime Minister John Howard was also a huge proponent of Anzac Day commemorations and visited Gallipoli twice in, in both 2000 and 2005. Interestingly, an increasing number of, of attendees at Anzac Day have been young Australians, many of whom attend ceremonies swathed in Australian flags, wearing green and gold t-shirts and beanies and with Australian flag tattoos imprinted on their skin. This phenomenon has been perceived by some as a reflection of the desire of younger generations of Australians to honour the sacrifices made by the previous generation. In my own family, um, years after I had left the family home, my niece and nephews would start to march with my father, something I had never done. According to the, uh, the historian, Dr. Carol Holbrook of Deakin University, we reached peak ANZIC in 2015. And there has been some backing off since then, but in terms of the dawn services and ANZIC Day commemoration, it will remain huge for a good while, says Carolyn. There is nothing better to take its place in terms of national mythology. In recent years, there has been greater recognition of the often overlooked role that women, immigrants, and First Nations peoples played in the wars, in the news, and in the arts. Black Diggers, which premiered at the Sydney's festival, told the stories of the Aboriginal men who enlisted, whose sacrifices were ignored and who were quickly forgotten upon their return. Country Arts South Australia's Aboriginal Diggers project is a three-year project, 2017 to 19, capturing the stories and experiences of Aboriginal servicemen and women who have served in Australia's military from the Boer War to the present day through film, theatre and visual arts. So there has been some attempt to make Anzac Day more inclusive and that would be very encouraging and supportive of that. And also very respectful of the people who participate in Anzac Day. But in remembering the dead, what and who does Anzac Day exclude? So although we do have a form of bearing witness, when we remember the ultimate sacrifice of soldiers who died in all wars, it is debatable whether all wars that Australians have been involved in were easily explained as being for our democratic freedoms, including the First World War. And also, for example, we could question the legitimacy of the First World War, the Vietnam War, the war on Iraq. On March 19, 2003, the United States, along with coalition forces, primarily from the United Kingdom, initiated war on Iraq. Just after the explosions began to rock back Baghdad, Iraq's capital, US President George Bush announced in a televised address. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people and to, to defend the world from grave danger. President Bush and his advisors built much of their case for war on the idea that Iraq under the dictator Saddam Hussein possessed or was in the process of building weapons of mass destruction. I don't know if you remember or recall, but thousands and thousands of people demonstrated around the world, including in Australia. No weapons of mass destruction were ever found in Iraq. The US declared an end to the war on Iraq 
on December the 15th, 2011, nearly 10 years after the fighting began. It's clear that since the First World War and before the First World War, uh, governments deliberately sought to glorify war so young men, in order to build their forces through voluntary enlist, would enlist voluntarily. But the horrors of the First World War were documented by poets like Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. And um, I won't go into all of the, I was gonna quote some of the poetry by uh, Wilfred Owen, but one of his famous poems um, called Delce et Decorum Est um, ends with the, uh, the old lie, Delce et Decorum Est, Po Patria Mori, which is a Latin phrase from the Roman poet Horace. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. So in the poetry that Wilfred Owen wrote, which, which really documented the grotesqueness and carnage of the war, and uh, he, he wrote with often bitter irony, and also Siegfried Sassoon, who protested against a lot of the injustices of the First World War and the unnecessary prolongment of the war, also wrote poetry documenting this. And um, interestingly enough, I was um, watching a movie uh, not too long ago called, uh, uh, not Restoration, but uh, something like that, about Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. And, um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a psychologist or psychiatrist at the time called Rivers. And both, both, uh, both, um, both Owen and, uh, and Siegfried Sassoon were treated by Rivers at this hospital in Edinburgh, Scotland. And, um, and one of the things that even today, you know, even with, um, you know, uh, Prime Minister Morrison's speech this morning, uh, how, how prime ministers or politicians almost like use this notion of selflessness uh, as a means towards um, justifying often you know, pathological forms of patriotism where people die needlessly. And it's not just, you know, Christian countries, this happens in Buddhist countries as well, where even during the Second World War in Japan, the notion of selflessness would have been used to march into battle. Um, so, and I think we need to be really careful about how this word selflessness is thrown about in relation to the things like Anzac Day and sort of question it a little bit. Siegfried Sassoon was, became a vocal point for dissent within the armed forces when he made a lone protest against the continuation of the war in what he called his soldier's declaration of 1917. It culminated in his admission to the military psychiatric hospital where he formed a friendship with, and became a mentor to Wilfred Bourne. And as many of you would know, like during World War I, thousands of soldiers suffered from shell shock a term coined during the war to describe a condition caused by psychological traumas. Rivers was the psychologist who treated Owen and Sassoon at the war hospital in Edinburgh in 1917. And he pioneered this field. He wrote about how the repression of traumatic war experiences only delayed an individual's recovery. Doctors were generally inexperienced in dealing with this new form of mental distress at that time, and many doctors and civilians did not believe this was a real illness, but rather a sign of weakness or a cowardly excuse to escape combat. Describing the effects of repression, Rivers writes, it is as if the process of repression keeps the painful memories or thoughts under a kind of pressure during the day accumulating such energy by night that they race through the mind with abnormal speed and violence when the patient is wakeful, or take the most vivid and painful forms when expressed by the imagery of dreams. Most troublingly, Rivers warns that repression risks passing men who are unwell as fit for service. And he would say that this can have but one result when he is again faced by the realities of warfare, a second breakdown or suicide. As he practiced in Edinburgh, Rivers firmly argued that soldiers can only overcome their illness by confronting, albeit in moderation, what has happened to them. And he advocated the facing of painful memories and, and, and deprecated the ostrich-like policy of attempting to banish them from the mind. 
And this was at the time, I think he may have also been trained in psychoanalysis. It was called the talking cure. Now, Rivers was ahead of his time at that time because other psychiatrists at the time were really doing pretty shocking things with electric shock treatment on shoulders to get them back into the war. And uh, Rivers was very gentle in his approach. And, um, and that, that kind of notion of how you treat PTSD has really been only until recently was seen as the way one had to, one had to work. So uh, dealing with PTSD was often, is still often called exposure therapy. Uh, in the cognitive tradition. However, over the past few years, um, this has been challenged and alternative ways of processing trauma have been developed, which no longer require having to relive the traumatic experiences. There may still be some kind of moderate exposure, but it's very much titrated. In other words, these days, we very much respect what is being dissociation, um, we very much respect denial. We need to work with people's protective strategies in that way. And um, because basically our neurobiology, that the process of denial and dissociation is one of the ways that it protects us against the shock and horror of trauma. Finally, another war has been excluded from Anzac Day. The First Nations resisted the invasion this has been documented extensively as the frontier wars by various Australian historians, notably one of them being Henry Reynolds. In the words of Stan Grant from his uh, article last, last Sunday, truth-telling has been rejected by this government. The Uluru statement from the heart asked for a full reckoning of our history, but still today Australians are woefully ignorant of the truth of Australia of invasion and massacre and segregation and stolen children. Australian political leaders still cannot utter the word genocide. We use weasel words like settlement and discovery and dispossession because we cannot use words of truth. There is still no plaque on the War Memorial's Roll of Honour for the Aboriginal warriors who fought and died defending their land in Australia's frontier wars. So there are the words by Stan Grant from last Sunday, and I highly recommend his article if you haven't read it. It covers more issues than that. And even back in Tasmania in the 1820s, settlers were able to recognize the reality of the war against our First Nations peoples. Um, this is a quote from uh, someone who was called um, um, J.E. Um, so I'll just read it out to you. During the war in Tasmania in the 1820s that swept all of these preconceptions aside and produced one of the colonial Australia's most provocative manifestos. It was printed in a Launceston newspaper at the very end of five years of conflict. The author, J.E., assumed to be the young surveyor, James Erskine Calder, posed what he called some solemn questions about the island's Aboriginal peoples. He declared, and this, these are the original words that I'm quoting now from this person back in 1820. We are at war with them. They look upon us as enemies, as invaders, as their oppressors and persecutors. They resist our invasion. They have never been subdued. Therefore, they are not rebellious subjects, but an injured nation defending in their own way their rightful possessions which have been torn from them by force. Given the time that it was written, that was provocative enough, but J.E., following the logic of this position, much further arguing, what we call their crime is what in a white man we should call patriotism. Where is the man amongst ourselves who would not resist an invading enemy? Who would not avenge the murder of his parents, the ill usage of his wife and daughters, and the spoliation of his earthly goods by a foreign enemy, if he had an opportunity. He who would not do so would be scouted, execrated, nay, executed as a coward and a traitor, while he who did would be immortalized as a patriot. Why then shall we deny the same feelings to the blacks? How can we condemn as a crime in these savages what we should esteem as a virtue in ourselves? Why punish a black man with death for doing that which a white man 
would be executed for not doing that. These were challenging questions then, Reynolds says, and they remain so today. There has been no attempt by either coalition or Labour governments to integrate the fallen heroes of our First Nations people into our National War Museum, where Australian children visit on a regular basis. As Henry Reynolds notes, we could easily have placed a tomb for the unknown warrior at the heart of the memorial next to the grave of the unknown soldier. So I'd just like to come back now to finish off with the uh, returning to this notion of bearing witness and denial. Bernie Glassman is a Zen teacher who died a few years ago. He was born to a Jewish family in Brooklyn in 1939. In 1996, he held the first bearing witness retreat at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany had been determined to eliminate differences. Bernie was determined to bring people together from different religions and nationalities to the very place where diversity had once been condemned to the grave. At these seven-day retreats, participants practiced Zazen and other rituals in order to bear witness to what had happened. Bernie sees bearing witness as a means of remembering and not forgetting, rather than joining with forces of avoidance and denial. Bearing witness is therefore seen as the opposite of avoidance and denial. But I think it's also important to bear witness also to our avoidance and denial in a non-judgmental way. It is easy for judgment to creep in when we reflect on the collective avoidance and denial of the frontier wards, black deaths in custody, veterans' pain and suicide and violence against women and children. However, we need to remember that avoidance and denial is built into our neurological makeup. It is there to help us survive. As uh, one of the uh, trauma specialists, Janina Fisher writes, PTSD represents our biological inheritance as human mammals. She asks, how do survivors achieve a sense of completion or resolution? For decades, she says, experts believed that the experience of resolution could only be gained by remembering the traumatic events and re-experiencing the unresolved emotions they felt left over. However, we have learned the hard way that re-experiencing the past can also contribute to a failure of resolution. We now know that survivors do not have to re-experience or even remember the past. However, they do have to be able to experience some kind of clear physical an emotional sense that it is over and that they are still here. If the goal of treatment, trauma treatment, is to be here instead of there, as Bessel van der Kolk tells us, any therapeutic approach must directly or indirectly keep the emphasis on the present. But our First Nations people do not experience some sense of clear physical and emotional sense that, that it is over and that they're still here. We still have so much further to go and uh, that was one of the most heartbreaking things for me of the rejection of the Uluru statement from the heart. But again, I think avoidance and denial is something we must respect among our fellow citizens and governments. Indeed, witnessing is dependent on our ability to deny. I don't think we could survive as you'll go about our everyday lives if we weren't in denial in some way about what's going on in the world. To face the truth of what is or has been, whether these be painful traumatic memories that have been dissociated or national historical facts that have been excluded from historical narratives. The human need to deny needs to be respected. It is only through, only through showing this respect that the individual or the nation will be ready to heal. So again, I'll leave you with this question that I mentioned at the beginning. Is Australia ready to you know, be more inclusive of Anzac Day? And if not, what are the kind of steps we need to take to prepare Australians to be able to do that and to bring our governments, you know, drag our governments to that recognition of what needs to be done? So I'll leave it there. Um, sorry for that was quite a long talk, but I wanted to get through some of those historical facts. Um, we could um, just um, look, maybe have about five or ten minutes of uh, anyone who wants to share or, or make a comment, uh, please do so. And um, 
I'll also, uh, if people on Zoom want to do that, you'll need to unmute yourselves. Just hang on a sec. Okay. So any any um, any questions or anything anyone wants to share or I know that uh, we do have some veterans here. I know what I know of one, but maybe there are others as well. Um, Any, uh, Michael, want to go? Go, Michael. Yeah. Um, just making a quick note. Um, yeah, thanks, Andrew. Well, that was pretty, uh, pretty massive and awesome. Say all that on this day. Um, oh, Anzac Day made no sense to me as a kid and growing up it was all kind of something that some people did that had something to do with RSLs and two up and drinking beer that really didn't mean a lot to me and yet I come from a, a, a family um, severely disrupted by war given um, all three of uh, my grandparents' sons, including my father, were in the war, all survived, but couldn't go back home afterwards because of the Iron Curtain and had, and had terrible things happen, um, particularly one of my uncles who was completely PTSD and paranoid schizophrenic after the war. Um, and Dad used to talk about it, and uh, he couldn't understand why all this happened. How could the Germans be like this and all that sort of stuff? Um, I'm just saying that because there's a personal kind of schism for me around the war and all that history. In, in my parents' experience, in my father's experience, and... I kind of soaked it up vicariously and it was discombobulating sometimes. But one thing that did heal a lot for him and brought us closer together around it is that, I don't know how it happened, but one year I suggested, hey, you know, why don't we go in the Anzac Day March in Sydney? And we did. And, and he was like a transformed man, you know. We found the Polish contingent um, at the tail end of the whole procession. There they were hanging out, having a fag and a bit of a beer, waiting for things to happen. And he, he joined his own, you know, and could talk to them about you know, yeah, where did you come from and where did you serve? And and there was a reconnection, you know. He's dead now. Um, I'm just feeling a little bit kind of teary thinking about it. And um, and then we went on the march and he was, he was transformed. He was reaching out and shaking the hands of um, kids. And, you know, mums and anybody that wanted to shake hands with him. Mm. And, um, yeah, there was just a lot of healing. And I, I, I just, you know, value Anzac Day that gave him the opportunity to, to have that experience. Mm. Yeah. And on a, on a, I'll stop in a sec, but on another level, I went to the opening of a show by um, George Gittos last night at the Kazula Powerhouse. George Gittos 
has done amazing things in so many theatres of war, witnessing in his art and just, but his art is a representation of the witnessing he and his wife did on a day-to-day -day level. And some of the things he told were, you know, just blew my mind. So I, I would invite anybody who is interested to explore some of the stuff that George Gittos has done. Anyway, that's enough for me. Sorry it took so long. I just got a little bit carried away by my um, feelings there. But thanks. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciated you sharing that 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 moment of connection on that day with your dad when he was marching with the, the, the Polish contingent and how deeply meaningful that was for him and having known your father and and, uh, and um, what a what a beautiful moment of healing that was and which shows us probably the importance of the of the Anzac Day ritual how we need to build upon it and, and make it as inclusive as we can and, and as healing as we possibly can. It's very moving. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. One of the difficulties with Zoom, Catherine, is that people on Zoom probably won't hear you, but I'll do my best to summarize what you say. It's okay. Okay. So true and so visible. 
and Ethereum acknowledgement of, of the other side of the coin, but and exclusiveness about um, and, and I think the conversation is in maybe is in addressing that it's probably pretty much what you expect, I guess. Yeah, no, great. Thank you, Catherine. Um did did you did you hear what Catherine said? Um no. Um, uh, Catherine was basically giving her perspective as a woman growing up in the 70s as well and, um, and how during those years um, for a long time to, 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 to speak in, in, in a sense of being having some kind of critical voice in relationship to Anzac Day, Catherine felt it was often felt like a heresy to do that. And uh, it was difficult for her to connect as a woman with Anzac Day and she was also radicalized by reading the poetry of Wilfred Owen and others. And, um, and uh, but um, Catherine was saying in terms of um, um, how we can prepare to, to, to try and help to make Anzac Day, the, the project of making it more inclusive, I guess one of the things we can do and one of the strategies we do is, is to engage in in more kinds of conversations around these issues with our fellow Australians, I guess. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, commentators like Stan Grant are leading the way in that. And, uh, and you know, people being being on public TV in that way can get these conversations going. And maybe when we have the opportunity, we can take them up with our, the different generations. I know that I really haven't spoken in any depth with my nieces or nephews about this really and they're the ones that you know they're now in the 40s kind of thing who march on Anzac Day and they used to march with my dad and uh, and I really haven't sort of reflected on this with them so even you know even with family members I guess, I guess we could uh, even with my sister even you know, came it's quite a big thing in my family Anzac Day but that was never it happened after I'd left so it was this interesting thing in in my own family I'm sure we all have Experiences that in in our own families too. Um, so look, we're running out of.